0: contemplate the fact that we are sons and daughters of a king. Thank you so much. Wow, what, what a thought. The very creator of the universe loves us, calls us his children, sons and daughters. We have an inheritance waiting for us that we cannot even imagine. Describe human words will fail. And so, Lord, tonight as we get into your word, we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, exceed our expectations. Allow your word to come right off the page into our minds, into our hearts. Allow us to chew on it and and be nourished by it, strengthened and equipped. And Lord, that we would uh, apply it in our lives, Lord, not just be hearers, but effectual doers. And we thank you that we get to just drink in of your word tonight. So remove all distractions. Remove any schemes of the enemy, Lord, the things that can get in the way remove all of those distractions. And Lord, we pray for the word that goes, that, that's going forth in the high school room and in the junior high room tonight, Lord, that our young ones would be fed and built up by Pastor Dane and, and Tyler, Lord, that you would move mightily through those young men who have prepared tonight to feed your children. And through our children's ministry, Lord, we thank you for our babies. We thank you for those young ones that you have gifted to us, that you have put on loan to us, that we are called to train up in your ways. Lord, may our uh, children's ministry uh, laborers just pour into them tonight and that they would be blessed as well, going back to their parents filled with the knowledge of God, filled with the love of Jesus. So we give you this evening. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So again, good evening, everybody. Just a few announcements before we get started. Um, If you haven't already signed up for the West Grove Watch that is our one-page e-newsletter that goes out via email once a week. Uh, Ms. Sharon Minaris will be uh, com- uh, compiling that information for you, sending it out via email. So if you'd like to sign up, you can do so at the information booth. You can always call the church as well. If you're online, you can get more information about that, those of you in the fellowship hall. Uh, uh, so go ahead and, 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 and get that and stay, stay up to date on the latest goings on in the church, the, the things that are coming up, um, you know, uh, things that, that you might have interest in. Uh, tomorrow, if you're a young adult, ages 18 to 30, just a, a reminder, Pastor Brandon is in the book of Revelation, somewhere in the uh, chapter 19, I believe. So uh, Young Adults Ministry, Fellowship Hall, 730 tomorrow evening, uh, don't miss it. Um, every Saturday, every, the first Saturday of every month, I shouldn't say every Saturday, but the first Saturday of every month, we have our Creation Science Fellowship, and that's led by Mr. Bill Morgan. He's been doing it for years. So February 6th at 5 p.m. in the junior high room, our next meeting will take place. It's going to be on how oceanography glorifies God. So Wayne and Karen Brown will be presenting how sea life clearly demonstrates that God exists. So all ages will enjoy this presentation. It is a family-friendly event. There's food to follow after the fellowship. So don't eat. Uh, Make sure you you come hungry. So 5 p.m., probably 5 to a little after 6, and then there's fellowship and food afterwards. So um, with that, I think that's it. So why don't we go ahead and say hello to somebody, make somebody feel welcome. Maybe somebody you haven't said hello to quite yet. So a lot of you may or may not know in my previous life I uh, wasn't behind a pulpit, I was behind uh, a, class, a classroom full of kids and a lot of times I would throw out a pop quiz, I was a math teacher for many years. So I got a little pop quiz for you guys, don't open your, your, your textbook just quite yet. So we've been going over the book of Romans, right, we've been week after week going over the book of Romans, we're going to be in chapter 3 here, so it's just going to be a little fill in the blank and if you know it, call it out. We're going to be in verse 16 of chapter 1. That, that's a little hint. I want to set you up for success here. For I am not ashamed of the? Awesome. It is the power of God for? Salvation. For who? Everyone. That, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17. For it is the righteousness of God that is revealed from... Oh, I got you on that one. <laughs> faith to faith as it is written. And finally, the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. Those two verses, 16 and 17, is kind of what the entire book of Romans hangs on. And so we're gonna constantly go back to that and recenter ourselves as we look at how Paul uh, continues to to go through the book of Romans and and systematically talk about the righteous man shall live by faith. And so uh, to go back, this has been a continuing thought uh, since uh, the 18th verse of chapter one. So even though we're in chapter 3 tonight, it's important to know that we've kind of had a continuing uh, stream of, of thought here. It's, it's one long dissertation on sin. And so Paul confronted the heathen back in chapter 1, 18, verse 32, a couple weeks ago. And like a prosecuting attorney, he confronted the heathen, the pagan, the one who is in a false religion, and they're worshiping a false god instead of the true and living God. They worship the creation over the creator. They exchanged the incorruptible for the inc- the corruptible. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They uh, exchanged the natural for the unnatural, and as a result, God gave them over for the lust of impurity. Uh, to degrading passions and a depraved mind. And as a result, all sorts of sin starts to unravel and and there's a downward spiral. And we talked about not only uh, those who engaged in that sin were worthy of death, Paul says, but those who give hearty approval, those who sanction sin, those who legislate legislate sin and celebrate sin, right? And we we talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then in chapter two, he shifts his focus because all of a sudden the self-righteous person Peaks up his head and, and he says to them, do you suppose, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? So these who were haughty, puffed up in their pride, looking down their nose in condemnation, in judgment at those who were in this lifestyle, uh, these lifestyles of sin were also looking down. But he said, you know, you do the very same things yourselves. You just won't admit it. Don't you think you're going to escape judgment as well? And so Paul explained the concept that God gave the Jews the law and he also gave the Gentile a conscience. And so the Gentile obviously has creation, and and everybody has creation to see that there is a grand designer, but he's also given the Gentile a conscience. He's given us all a conscience. It's hardwired into us to understand right from wrong, just from unjust, um, what's fair and what's not fair. You don't have to tell a little child uh, what's fair and unfair. All of a sudden they'll say, that's not fair. How many times have you heard a little kid say, that's not fair? And our response in our house was always that the fair is in Costa Mesa, so Don't give me that. So, but we have this conscience that knows, that's my one bad joke for the day. Uh, I had a really bad one last week, if you're here. But anyway, you got... We have this conscience in us that bears witness to just and unjust, fair and unfair. And so that's, that's exactly what Paul w- was talking about with the Gentiles. And then he starts to hone in on the super-righteous, those who are starting to try to justify themselves, not through faith, but through the law. And Pastor Eric taught on that last Sunday when uh, Paul set his sights on the Hebrew, and they were really taking... Um, Uh, comfort and uh, security in the fact that they were circumcised. In the outward act, this physical ritual of circumcision, they believed made them righteous on the outside. And, And Pastor Eric really honed in on the fact that the physical external act of circumcision should represent or reflect what's gone on in the heart. And that's not what was going on. What was going on was this outward act actually meant nothing to God because there was no evidence of Uh, loving God and, and having a heart after God. And so he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart. So Paul starts to spiritualize something that was very religious. He starts to spiritualize it for the Jews because they were missing the entire intent behind circumcision. So that brings us to chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Paul will continue to bring about uh, this, this thought of the super religious, this, uh, these people that were the Jews that were trying to attain righteousness by the law. And he's going to shed light uh, on asking them a number of rhetorical questions. And so studying these passages of scripture, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't exactly easy. I'm going to be uh, full disclosure here. And the way I kind of look at it is Paul is, again, he's a, he's a very intelligent man. And he's going through this argument. It's almost as if he's going to be talking to himself. But what he's doing is, what I believe he's doing is he is disarming his critics. He's getting out of head, ahead of them four, five, six steps ahead. So sometimes when you are in a debate or some type of uh, conversation, argument, if you will, somebody will ask questions to try to poke a hole in your position or your stance. And he's going to ask that question for them. And remi- remind yourself, he is a Jew he understands the way they think. He's going to be in their head, So he already knows the questions that they will ask. So he's going to ask questions four, five, six steps ahead and then he's going to answer those questions for them and continue to disarm them and continue to show them how they are in error. That they truly are in sin. Even though they have the law, that they are in sin. So he's going to have this strategy going on and I believe it is very, very strategic. A very strategic way to get his point across. So Romans 3 verses 1 Through four says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Verse three, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So the first two questions Paul, first two questions Paul asks is, are, are based on the strong assertions that one, God is impartial. There's no partiality with God and he will indeed judge. He will judge the, the Jew first and the Greek. So God, again, is not impressed, swayed, manipulated by any outward formalities, any ways in which we are trying to impress him with our outward acts. He searches the heart. So church attendance, baptism, Communion on the first Sunday of the month; those are all beautiful things in and of themselves. But if they're done with an ulterior motive, if they're done to try to impress those around us, and we're doing them with without a pure heart, God sees to the heart of the matter. He sees right through that pretentiousness. And so that's what Paul is is uh, hanging these first two questions on this this outward act, these these formalities that the Jews had been involved in. So therefore, if a Jew worshipped God with an earnest heart, does he have an advantage? If he was circumcised and his heart was aligned with God, does he have a benefit? And, and, and he says, yes, great in every respect. You know, through, throughout, time eternity, or throughout time of the Jews, even though they weren't necessarily abiding by the law, because there was many times when they didn't abide by the law, but if, if they did adhere to the dietary laws or the sanitation or the cleanliness laws that you see in, in the first five books of the Bible or the financial principles that God laid forth or the, uh, the physical protection that, that God would uh, lay forth in his word, they benefited from it. As a result of following those principles, the, the Jews benefited from it. And as I was studying, I read uh, one of uh, the commentaries uh, through Pastor John Corson and he cited that at one point, During the bubonic plague, one out of every three people were dying. But the Jews were relatively untouched because of their sanitation laws, because they were adhering to the laws that were put forth in the Bible. So yes, there is benefit in being a Jew. You were given the ordinance of of God. This is what uh, verse 2 says. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that word entrusted is more than just being a custodian. It's more than just being a possessor of, it means to keep, it means to obey, it means to uh, enact those laws into your life. It's more than just having these laws given to you and kind of shelving them and, and just uh, letting them collect dust. Jesus made a very similar statement and I believe I have it uh, no, I don't. I don't have that one up on the screen. I'll get, it. I'll get the next one. Uh, it says in John 14, 24, John says, uh, 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 Jesus says in John 14, 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words. It's the very same word. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so as... The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, same as Jesus has given us his words. We are just not to put those on the shelf. We're not to put his word on the shelf and let it collect dust. We're to keep it. We're to enact it within our life. And that's what Paul is saying here. You were given the ordinances of God, but more so you were entrusted with them. And and therefore there is benefit. There is advantage. And what's interesting here is um, he says, first of all, and so when you say, first of all, there is an implication that there's more to follow, that he's going to enumerate more reasons as to why there's benefit and advantage to being a Jew, being circumcised. And unfortunately, we don't get any other reasons in this particular passage. However, I believe if you go to chapter, is my clicker working? Is Ah, uh, oh well, there we go. There we go. If you go a couple chapters ahead in Romans chapter 9, Paul provides some added context as to the advantages and benefits of being a Jew. Now the context of this particular portion of scripture is he's uh, demonstrating his heart for his own people. He was uh, indeed an apostle sent out to be an apostle of the Gentiles, but he had such a burning desire for his people, so much so that he said he would be willing to be accursed if it meant the nation of Israel would not be separated from Christ. He was willing to go to hell. He was willing to be eternally separated from God if that meant Israel would be uh, with Christ. And so he says this right after. He says, uh, To whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises. Verse five, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. So I bless you. I believe God <laughs> I believe Paul, in this particular portion of Scripture, gives us a little more insight as to uh, the benefits and the advantages of being a Jew. And you, you notice God made covenants with no other people. He made promises with no other people. He gave them the law, the temple services. Um, he allowed the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who was gonna abolish all sin, he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. And, and he came to, to take that all for our, uh, for our sakes. He allowed the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, to be the conduit by which the Savior of the world was to come through. So yes, great in every respect. There is advantage. There is benefit to being a Jew. But it's not on the basis of salvation. There's there's some benefit based there, but it's not on salvation. So the next question he says, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will nullify the faithfulness of God. So again, he's getting in the Jew's mind. So the next question is, If there is unbelief, will that nullify or cancel out the faithfulness of God? He says, may it never be, or that could also be translated, certainly not. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So if they are entrusted with the oracles of God, and that's an advantage or a benefit to them, then how about those who did not believe? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says, absolutely not. That is absolute false. That's ridiculous. Um, that is uh, a false logic or a false line of thinking. And if you think back in, in uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, make sure I get, oh, there we go. First Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to paraphrase. I have it up there fully for you. But he basically is explaining Israel as they were supernaturally delivered out of Egypt. The faithfulness of God is on full display as he's delivering his people out of oppression, out of a terrible, terrible lifestyle from an an oppressive people, the Egyptians. They were under the cloud, passed through the sea, ate the same spiritual food, which was the manna, drank the same spiritual drink from the spiritual rock, which was of Christ. And then in verse five of this passage, it says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Why was he not well pleased with them? For their unbelief, they were grumblers, they were complainers. They were doubters. They thought God brought them out to the wilderness for them to die. They were complaining that Moses didn't know what he was doing. God just supernaturally delivered them from Egypt. He was providing for them every step of the way. What should have been a 10 to 14 day journey took them 40 years because of their unbelief. They would say things like, I'm missing the cucumbers and the onions and the leeks and the melons of Egypt. They had this selective memory, and yet they were forgetting the oppression and the hard lifestyle that they were under, the, 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 the thumb of Pharaoh. And, and as, as a result, that generation did not get to enter into the promised land. God's faithfulness was not, uh, was not nullified. His faithfulness continued even though their unfaithfulness uh, continued. So Paul says they were laid low in the wilderness as a result. They did not get to enter into that promised land. A whole other generation uh, was allowed to. So God's faithfulness was on full display. And unfortunately... Uh, And God also provided them a mediator through Moses. That was another thing that he faithfully provided, and yet they still were uh, unfaithful in their unbelief, with their grumbling, complaining, even to the point of idolatry. And so he says, may it never be, rather let God be found true. And I love that statement. Rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Paul emphatically rejects the notion that man's unbelief nullifies God's faithfulness. God's fidelity is based on God being truth. God is love. God is truth. He cannot lie. He will always follow through with a promise. If he makes a promise, he will keep it. He cannot lie. So his fidelity is based on him being just the sheer essence of truth. And then he, uh, Paul refers to Psalm 51, verse 4. But I think it's important to look at uh, the first four verses of that psalm to get the entire context. Psalm 51, 1 through 4, you start to look at David. And this is one of the spiritual giants, one of the the men of renown of the Jewish faith, right? David is probably on the Mount Rushmore of of the Jewish faith, right? And so he is a spiritual giant. He's one that um, they look up to, the King David. Now, to further solidify the fact that God is true and man be a liar... He cites this psalm that David pens after Nathan confronts David on his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Remember, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, covered it up by uh, ordaining the murder of of Uriah. Verse 1, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David finally got real with God. He finally prostrated himself. He finally confessed his sin. He was no longer suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. He wasn't uh, setting it off to the side. David finally takes responsibility and he confesses his sin. All that time, God continued his faithfulness. But again, God was true. David was the liar. Again, David being one of the giants of the Jewish faith, Paul is outlining that it it doesn't matter who you are. There's nobody perfect, and he's gonna continue this line of thinking in this next passage. And so verse five through eight, Romans uh, chapter three, verses five through eight, says, but if our, he starts to ask more questions. So again, he's getting out in front of what they think in terms of logic. He's getting out into the next step. And so therefore, he says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? This is a crazy question, crazy line of thinking. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded in his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So again, Paul is anticipating the next line of questioning that his potential objectors might, might uh, pose. And these cynics, these skeptics, uh, an objector might take the next logical step and say, okay, if a man's sin brings about the righteousness of God, if my sin is validating the foreknowledge of God, then how can I be judged for my sin? Isn't my sin serving the divine purposes of God? Isn't the the evil that I'm doing, it's bringing about the righteousness of God, so doesn't the end justify the means? Isn't God receiving the glory either way, whether I'm sinning or not? His, His righteousness is still on full display. So therefore, if God does judge me for my sin, does that make God unjust? Doesn't that make God an unjust God so... Because isn't his righteousness, the whole goal here, isn't that the end game for his righteousness to be on display? And so this line of thinking is so flawed because the ends don't justify the means. My evil might result in God's righteousness, but that doesn't justify my evil. That doesn't justify the decision to enact evil. David's sinful acts resulted in the... uh, God's righteousness uh, persisted through David's sinful acts. It's almost like saying... Think about Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And and, and using this logic, didn't Judas usher in one of the greatest things for mankind? The salvation of the world came through Christ, the crucifixion. And that all started by Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So therefore, why should Judas be judged? That one evil act, even though it was evil, it started to usher in, it started to set in motion the very crucifixion that would pay for the sins of the world. So therefore, why should Judas be judged? That's the line of thinking. That's the line of questioning Paul is attacking here in this portion of Scripture. Paul clarifies that he's asking these questions in human terms. He's not saying I'm I'm no longer inspired by the Spirit here. I'm kind of writing in my own words here. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that I'm using this flawed, uh, almost uh, man-made logic, if you will, To question God's justice, I'm I'm questioning these things in human terms. I'm I'm trying to think as you think, but this is not how God thinks. These are not uh, these are not. This is not the logic of God. So Paul was still inspired by the Spirit. He was just clarifying that these questions, these types of questions, would come from a man who's not in the Spirit, who doesn't have a heart aligned with God, who's attempting to justify his sinful lifestyle by saying the ends justify the means. That my sin will still bring about the righteousness of God. And so Paul's response to that question again is, may it never be, absolutely not, certainly not. That is absolutely false. So how will God judge the world, it says, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded in his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? So again, Paul restates the question, more so in the context of lying. He says, if I lie and the truth of God abounds to his glory, again, how can I be judged as a sinner? God's truth is now on display. God's truth is being revealed through my lie. Then why should I be judged? Because now God is, is, is being glorified. And so Paul says, why stop there then? If that is your logic, the next step is, well, let's do evil so that good may come. Think about that. Let's do evil so that good may come. Let's enjoy the freedoms of sinning because it's going to bring about God's righteousness. Paul also states that some have reported him saying that he teaches this. They're slandering his name. They're trying to poke holes in his teaching. They're trying to take his reputation and throw it down the the drain because they're saying that he has taught this previously. They're slandering his name. What a dangerous, dangerous thing to do to somebody when we slander, and that's what was going on. There were some that were slandering him because they said that he was promoting this doctrine. He was teaching these doctrines, and it was, again, he had to set the record straight there uh, as, as a kind of parenthetical statement there. So if you honestly believe that doing evil will result in good, your condemnation is just. The verdict is in, the spiritual principle of reaping and sowing, then you're not, you're not abiding by it. There is a spiritual principle that God has laid forth in his word and it is sure as the day is long that what what you sow, you will reap. You will reap what you sow, excuse me. In Galatians 6, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap to the flesh corruption. And that word corruption means a field rotten, a field that is rotten for the harvest, so a bunch of rotten fruit will come as a result if you sow to the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. And then he has an amazing statement at the end. It says, let, not those, uh, let, not, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. As Christians, there is a deferred gratification. And unfortunately, we have to uh, not lose heart. And in due time, we will reap. It may not be right away, and at times it's difficult because we can see those that might not be sowing to the spirit. They might be sowing to the flesh, and it looks like they are enjoying it. It looks like they're getting away with it, and it looks like God is turning a blind eye to it, and, it's, and that's not the case. And so we need to not lose heart in doing good, not give up, not continue in the fight, Paul says, for in due time, God will see to it that you will reap so don't grow weary, stay in the fight. So that's my encouragement to you. That was something that just jumped off the scriptures, jumped off the page to me as I was going through the scriptures these past couple of days in terms of do not lose heart in doing good because right now it can, get, it can be discouraging. Right? We have a lot of things that are working against the church, against Christians, maybe even against those who uh, uh, have a, a certain political outlook. right? And a lot of things are going, seeming to be going the wrong way. But don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We are storing up treasures in heaven, and those treasures will be enjoyed forevermore. The treasures here on earth are going to be uh, uh, enjoyed temporarily. So I would rather defer that to an eternal uh, enjoyment. The prophet Hosea said something very similar, uh, said something about sowing and reaping. In chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, he says, "'Sow with a view to righteousness. "'Reap in accordance with kindness. "'Break up your fallow ground, "'for it is time to seek the Lord "'until he comes to rain righteousness on you. "'You have plowed wickedness. "'You have reaped injustice. "'You have eaten the fruits of lies. "'Because you have trusted in your way "'in your numerous warriors, "'therefore a tumult will arise among your people.' All And all your fortresses will be destroyed. So again, if you want to engage in evil, good will not come. Good will not come from engaging in evil. Hosea lays down these principles very clearly in chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Sowing with a view to righteousness, that is the the goal, that is the the focus. Sowing with a view to righteousness, and you will reap in accordance with kindness. And so the law of of reaping, uh, sowing what you reap, reaping what you sow, uh, that spiritual principle does not go away, and therefore the the, the logic is so flawed uh, by by these uh, particular questions that could be asked by Paul's objectors. And so verses 9 through 20, Paul starts to sum all of this up. The whole world is now guilty. He puts it all under one umbrella. Now remember, he looked at the heathen first, the, 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 the one that was worshiping the false god, worshiping the, the creation versus the creator the one who had given themselves over to, to a depraved mind and, 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 and given themselves over to all sorts of lust and immorality. And then he focused on the self-righteous, and then he focused on the super-righteous, right? The, the Jew, the legalist. So now he's going to put everybody under one umbrella in these, in these next 11 verses, and he says basically the whole world is guilty. Here in verses 9 through 20, Paul will conclude man's need for God's forgiveness. And by stating that the whole world is guilty, he will use terms like none and all, very I- extreme terms. And he's going to use them from a host or a collection of Old Testament scriptures. And so we're going to put those up on the board here momentarily. But verse 9, we'll look at verses 9 first, verse 9 and 10. It says, what then, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So he says, the next line of questioning here, if evil, even though evil uh, does not result in good, right, um, my un- unrighteousness my, does not prove uh, or justify, um, my unrighteousness is justified by God being righteous. So what then, are we better than they? When he uses the word we, he's including himself in that statement because, again, he's speaking to the Jews. And so though the heathen stands condemned, though the hypocrite, the self-righteous man stands condemned, and now the Hebrew possessing the oracles of God is condemned before the law and the commandments of God. He's saying, are we better than them? Do we have uh, a leg up? Not just an advantage and benefit, but now are are we better than them? Do we have a privilege that they don't have in, in the sense of salvation? And he says, not at all, for we are charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So he's talking about the sin issue now. He's not talking about the benefits of abiding by the law. He's talking that there is a sin issue that needs to be deal, dealt with. And even though you were a Jew or a Greek or, or better said a Gentile, a non-Jew, we are all under sin. We're all under the, the same umbrella. And so the Jews are in no better position than the Gentiles. In fact, the Jews will be judged first. They're actually first in line in the judgment. You can make an argument that they're actually in a position of of more peril than, than than the Gentiles because they will be judged first. And they were given the law of God, the oracles of God, first. And so he says, not at all. Jews and Gentiles alike... From the middle of chapter 1 through chapter 3, stand condemned under sin. It is an open and shut case. And so from 10, verses 10 through 18, Paul now is going to use the testimony of Scripture. Up until this point, he hasn't used much Scripture to to, uh, refer back to or as reference or to justify his positions. He's used things like creation and conscience and, and, and a little bit of circumcision. But now he's going to go right back to Scripture. And and you can say that like a skilled lawyer with his closing arguments, he, he wants to sk- seal this verdict right now for all mankind, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. And so he's going to use the testimony of Scripture and more specifically, he's going to go to the Psalms and one verse out of Isaiah. And so one could speculate that Paul strategically held out on using the testimony of the Scriptures on his closing arguments, because he wanted the Gentiles to uh, understand and increase for his respect for being able to relate to them. And now he's related to them, he's reasoned with them on their terms, and now he's going to back all of that up with scripture. What's also interesting is he doesn't go back to the law. He's talking about sin, but he doesn't go back to the law. He goes back to scriptures out of the Psalms, and like I said, out of Isaiah. That's really, really interesting. Interesting. So Paul's going to give a crystal clear picture how sin is universal among all people and how it impacts humanity on an individual basis and a collective basis. He's going to give them the full uh, uh, impact and context of these scriptures in, in, in his references. And it's going to be a good idea for you, a little bit of homework, again from my teaching days, is to go back through each of these psalms and read each of these psalms fully we don't have time to do that here tonight we might be here till nine o'clock if we did but if you go back to each of the psalms and i'm going to put them up on the board here in fact i think there they are is that too small i don't know if you can see them but small from my vantage point but from verses 10 through 18 paul refers to a psalm or a, a, a scripture out of isaiah read those entire psalms and you'll get a full context as to why he chose those scripture references to utilize here in his closing arguments if you will So verse 10, it says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That is from Psalms 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. I learned that those those are exact words in both of those Psalms. And then verse 13, it says, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving... That also could be translated flatter. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's from Psalm 5.9 and Psalm 143. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10.7. Verse 15 and 16, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Verse 17, and the path of peace they have not known. Isaiah 59, 7. He's continuing to, to, to refer back to the scriptures. And finally, verse 18, kind of the summation of all these statements. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That was uh, Psalm 36, 1. And so he takes these scriptures and uh, He does something very interesting with them as you start to look at them in general again it points to the natural man's inner being is controlled by sin and the natural man the man that is left over to his own devices is being controlled by sin and this is an all-inclusive statement you see words like none are righteous all have turned aside none does good and it's all by their own volition all by their own choice and so he's using these all-inclusive terms or exclusive terms to say that nobody's exempt. Everybody's under this umbrella. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're righteous, self-righteous, or super-righteous. All of these things are, pertain to you. And so Paul is referring not to just the righteousness that we try to, uh, try to uh, attain by doing good works. He's talking about the divine righteousness. He's talking about the righteousness that can only come from Christ. And so when we start getting into uh, chapter 3, verse 21, he starts to talk about that divine righteousness, the imputed righteousness that we'll get to in the coming weeks. So don't, you don't want to miss it. And, and he spends the next half of chapter 3 through f- chapter 5 on what that imputed righteousness is all about. It's the justification by faith. That's why we went back uh, initially to chapter 1. It's uh, the righteous man shall live by faith, not the righteous man shall not live by the law or by doing good deeds. And so that's what he's trying to get to here. He's referring to the divine righteousness that can only come from knowing Christ and having Christ. Talking about perfection. And so therefore the power of sin ruptures the relationship between man and God. And, he, and that estranges man from God to a point where he's unprofitable in his own life and he's unprofitable to God. And as I was, again, studying these scriptures, that word rupture jumped right off the page Because there was a time, actually two times, I ruptured my Achilles tendon. And that rupture, I physically felt. It's a violent separation of tissue. (laughs) If you've ruptured a water main, right, it's a violent breaking of that water main because of the pressure, and, and that water main gives out because of its weakness. My Achilles tendon was unable to withstand whatever pressure I was putting on it, and it ruptured. And so that's what sin does. That's the picture that, that Paul is painting here. Sin ruptures us, our, our relationship with God. It's a violent separation. But, but the beautiful thing is, is just like my Achilles tendon, when it was surgically put back together, it healed. It had to be surgically put back together. Luke, uh, in, in Luke chapter, um, where did I lose my place here? Lost my place. Jesus in, I believe it's Luke um, goodness gracious, I just lost my place. There it is, Luke 15. No. In, in the book of, ah, I'm sorry, guys, I lost my place. In the book of Luke, I know it's in Luke. <laughs> oh, it is verse 15. I'm sorry. Luke 15. I thought that was verse 15, but it's Luke 15. He goes over three different parables. He goes over, uh, parables of the tax collector No, he's sitting among tax collectors and sinners. He goes over three parables. One is of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And each one of these parables, uh, there is a restoring. And it's God, uh, uh, Jesus giving a parable to say, if you had 100 sheep and one was to go lost, missing, would you leave the 99? Wouldn't you leave the 99 to go get the one? If you had 10 coins and one was to go missing, wouldn't you leave the nine to go after the one. And then when the prodigal son comes back, he indeed had a sibling, but the father was rejoicing in the fact that his son had been restored to him. He said, you were once lost and now you were found. The sheep was once lost and now it was found. The coin was once lost and now it was found. And each, at the end of each one of those parables, there's a celebration because of the rejoining together. And so that's, God pursues us even in our, our, our sin. After we've ruptured that relationship and it's, it might be a violent rupture. He still pursues us and he still comes after us. And if we respond to that love, there's a reconnection. There's a healing. There's restoration and redemption. So each point, uh, each point in that, in that uh, beautiful chapter of Luke 15, there is a, a, a redemption and a restoration and celebration. So verses 13 through 18 in these scriptures here that are on the board, it cites um, uh, interesting. It, it starts to kind of give us a little bit of a physiology lesson you see throat, tongue, lips, mouth, and eyes. And this, these scriptures point out to the effect of sin on the entire body of man. A man uh, is not in and of himself, he, he's inherently, he's born with sin, but he's not at his worst until sin starts to permeate and pervade each and every part of his being. And so you can see the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the eyes, they all can be corrupted by sin. And so it's it, it, it can manif- sin can manifest itself in a, in a multitude of ways. Interestingly as well, if you look at four of these body parts, they have to do with human communication. The throat, the tongue, the lips, and the mouth. The throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they keep deceiving or they flatter. The poison of asps is under their lips, their, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So interestingly enough, we... Uh, it, on Monday mornings, I don't know if you've heard the announcement, we're going through the book of James uh, for uh, coffee with pastors on Monday mornings. And we happen to be in James chapter 3, and the first 12 verses of James chapter 3 is all about the tongue, the dangers, uh, how dangerous the tongue can be, how we can set uh, ablaze uh, a situation, how it can completely burn down relationships. And so James says, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and, and with it, we curse men. The very same tongue that we bless God with, that we sing praises to God with, we can turn around and curse, slander, backbite, gossip about our fellow man or our fellow woman. It, it is, a, 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 the tongue is a, is a fire, James says. And so that's what Paul is saying here. We have uh, sin manifesting itself through the throat, the tongue, the lips, and the mouth. Interestingly enough as well, Jesus addressed this. Oops. Jesus addressed this in Matthew 12:34. He says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So the mouth is only going to follow what's in the heart. And remember, circumcision was not an outward act. It was not just supposed to be this outward representation. He who is a Jew is was one inwardly. It's a, it's a matter of the heart. And so for the mouth speaks out of what what is in the heart. And so people will tell you who they are. When you hang around somebody long enough, they will tell you exactly who they are. They will tell you what's in their heart with what comes out of their mouth. You just have to pay attention. Sometimes you don't have to pay attention too much because it will just come out and you'll, you'll, you'll hear their arrogance. You'll hear all forms of evil. Maybe it's cursing, profanity, uh, sexual innuendos, what have you. You'll hear exactly who they are and you, you, can, you can see that for, and they'll just tell you. You don't have to say a word. Three verses later, Matthew, uh, J- Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty-seven: "For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." How can we be by our words justified? Well, just confess the Lord is your, confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and you will be justified. You'll have your sins paid for. But if not, your words will condemn you. The very things, if you deny Christ, you dev- deny the Savior. You will stand condemned in your words verses 15 through 17 if you look at verses 15 through 17 it spotlights how interpersonal relations and how social relationships are impacted impacted so how we are interpersonally and how we are societally are also impacted by these sins that that paul puts on display here in this collection of scriptures you see words like conflict bloodshed destruction misery lack of peace or no peace And so, again, sin can not only manifest through the different parts of our bodies, but it also can manifest interpersonally and societally, individually and collectively. We see these coming out in these scriptures here. And finally, verse 18 concludes with that summary statement, and it kind of is the capstone of all of these scriptures, and and it kind of sums up why these things happen. The root problem they have no fear of God. Those who have no fear of God have no fear of judgment have no fear of accountability. They don't believe in an authority figure that or a, a power above them. So therefore, they believe they, they can do what they want, when they want, how they want to do it, and it doesn't matter what the impact is on those around them. They have no fear of God. They can say what they want to say, do what they want to do, create whatever environment they want to create, and they have no fear of, 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 of judgment or accountability. It's a really dangerous position to be in when you have no fear of God. The arrogance and pride of man refuses to fear or reverence God. That's when pride and, and, and arrogance is kind of at an all-time high, when you're not able to fear God. And we know Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You can't even get on the path of knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's your first step on the pathway of knowledge, and, and that's just to have the fear of the Lord, and then you will have the knowledge that the Lord will, have you, will, will want you to have, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His Word. But if you have no fear of God, you're puffed up with worldly knowledge, with the knowledge of man, and then you are on a completely different path altogether. So going on to verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So again, Paul being a very intelligent man, being a Jew himself, he seems to again continue to get in the mind of his fellow Jew and continues to um, ask and answer questions. And he is uh, nailing down this, this final indictment. A Jew might look at the scriptures might look at somebody who, who is, um, personifies all of those scriptures that, that are up on the board there, and they might say, well, that lawless Jew is not representative of the nation, representative of, the nation of Israel anyway. So yes, they, they will be under a strict judgment. But the fact remains that the scriptures just don't apply to the godless or the rebellious man. Everybody is under the law. Those who are under the law are going to be accountable to the law. Paul just finished referring to Psalms and Isaiah. He could have went back to the first five books of, of the Mosaic law and pointed out the law there. But the, the idea that Paul is driving home is, is, yes, you're under the law, but you have knowledge of God's word. It's more about having knowledge of God's word. You've been raised in the Jewish culture with God's word. You you have the oracles of God, and you have a working knowledge of God's word. So therefore, you are without excuse. You are not exempt from this accountability. And so therefore, so that every mouth may be closed, and I love that, so that every mouth may be closed and that all the world will become accountable to God. The result is complete submission and accountability to God. I found this quote and I loved it. It says, when human achievement is measured against what God requires, there is no place for pride or boasting, but only for humble silence that consents to a guilty verdict. I'll read it again. When human achievement is measured against what God requires, there is no place for pride or boasting, but only for humble silence and consent to a guilty verdict. And so when you measure yourself against what God requires and you understand that the standard of righteousness is perfection and that you will never attain that perfection no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you try to uh, uh, follow the law, even though you're under the law, you know it, you have a working knowledge of the law, No matter how hard you try, you still have fallen short. You still have sinned and fallen short. So therefore, there is no room for pride. There is no room for boasting. There should be a humble silence and a a repentant heart. It's interesting in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 14, it depicts the great white throne judgment. And again, I'm going to paraphrase those four scriptures. It says, in that day, the dead, great, and small were standing before the throne. They're standing there. They're not saying anything. The books were open and the book of life was open and the dead were judged according to the deeds. So I thought it was interesting to note that there are no sounds recorded by the Apostle John in the great white throne judgment. There's no discussion. The dead are being judged. The books are open and they are receiving the just penalty that they are due given the fact that they have rejected their Savior and they are now standing in their own sin. So therefore, every mouth may be closed, and all the world will be, uh, become accountable to God. So again, in this day and age, it's difficult to see those whose mouths profess lies. You know, you look on the TV, and whether it's the mass media, whether it's politicians, whether it's entertainers, musicians, movie stars, you see those that have a throat that is an open grave, their tongues continue to deceive. The poison of asps is, is under their lips. If you look at the entertainment industry, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, it, it, it never really ends, and it only continues to degrade and continues to spiral downward. And so it gets frustrating. Those who are corrupted with greed, power, authority, prestige, they want to have positions of power and willing to do anything and everything to get it are going to be accountable to God. So though we have a deferred gratification as Christians, there will be a deferred, uh, deferred, not gratification, but accountability for those who have not repented of their sin. And what's going to happen is their mouth will be closed, their mouth will be shut. Though it was an open grave at one point, though they spewed all sorts of unrighteousness, though they cursed Though they were flattering and had the poison of asps under their lips, at this point in time, when they're standing before uh, God, and they will stand before God, their mouth will be closed and they will become accountable to God. The Lord says, Vengeance is mine. So I know it's frustrating, Christians. I know it's frustrating to see some of the things that people appear to be getting away with. They appear to have uh, gotten away with something that they did not earn. Accountability is coming. You can bank on it. It's the Lord's work. Vengeance is his. They will stand accountable and their mouths will be shut. Verse 20 is the final, final nail in the coffin. You see, the Jews didn't get, they didn't understand why they were entrusted or given the oracles of God. They, they, right, those were questions that were asked. But no flesh is justified through the law. Again, there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. So, no matter how hard a person works to justify themselves by observing the law, you still have your sin to account for. Your good works don't erase your bad works. There's always something that you've done to fall short. And so, no flesh will be justified in His sight apart from the Savior, apart from Christ. To which that's what Paul is building towards. That's that's his whole line of reasoning here. So he's going to shift gears in verse 21 when he says uh, when he starts to talk about righteousness. So the law loudly proclaims you need forgiveness. You fall short. You need a savior. There's nothing you can do to follow the law perfectly. And so the best revelation a person has apart from Christ only makes him more aware of his failure. The best revelation that a person can have apart from Christ is that their sin further and further separates them from God and makes them more and more aware of his failure. So as any great trial lawyer does, Paul rests his case that all people, no matter who you are, you're a sinner, you fall short. And in verse 21 of chapter 3, through all the way through chapter 5, as I mentioned, Paul dives into how a person obtains righteousness apart from the law. So he establishes, he's established here in the last 63 verses that we've gone through that you can't, you can't go any other way. You can't ad- obtain righteousness any other way. And so he's going to give you the solution now when we go through the rest of chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. He's going to give us the imputed righteousness. Righteousness that comes by what? Faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. He's going to continue to build on that thesis statement. And he's going to do that in the rest of chapter 3, chapter 4. And chapter 5. So the righteous man shall live by faith. That is uh, reiterated in Galatians and it's also reiterated in Hebrews. And so the righteousness of God is on display here in in the book of Romans. So stick with us. Hopefully you come on Sunday mornings. Hopefully continue to come on Wednesdays. We're going to continue in the next two and a half chapters to build that line of thinking. So we're done with the sinner. The sinner has now been indicted. The case is closed. The verdict is in. We are all sinners. We all have fallen short. It doesn't matter if you're the heathen. It doesn't matter if you're the self-righteous moralist. It doesn't matter if you're the super-righteous legalist Jew. We all have fallen short of the uh, the standard that God has set for us, which is perfection, the righteousness that he requires. So now Paul is going to give us the solution as we go forward. The righteous man shall live by faith. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you that apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, we know that though we strive to be pleasing to you and to to be good to others, we know that that doesn't earn us salvation. There's no good works that earn us salvation. Doing the good works of God, doing uh, the, the works that you have called us to do, Are out of sheer response and love to you, out of obedience to you, to build your kingdom, to bless the body, to reach a lost and dying world. But Lord, we know that salvation can only be received through the blood of Jesus. We receive forgiveness for our sins, for the wrath of God is poured out on you, Lord. Lord, for you lived a perfect sinless life. You said you didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, and that you did. You were tempted and tried, just as any man, but you did not enter into that temptation. In fact, with every temptation that came your way, you recited scripture, and as you recited scripture, the enemy had to flee. And so we thank you, Lord, for your perfect example. Thank you for following the law perfectly. And then he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf that we might know the righteousness of God. You then took the place of us on that cross and became sin, physically embodied sin. A man who never knew sin in his entire life became sin on our behalf. Thank you. And Now we get to trade our filthy rags, our righteousness, our stuff. We get to trade for bright white shining robes that are whiter than snow we thank you Lord and so Lord as we worship you the rest of this evening as we go forth the rest of our week we pray Lord that we would not lose sight that the righteous man shall live by faith so we pray that you would give us that faith Lord you would continue to uh, embolden our faith strengthen it May we not grow weary in doing good. Lord, a lot of things around us are, are heavy. We have friends and family members that are ill, battling to save, uh, bat- battling to, to, to stave off this, this virus. It has riddled them not only in their health, but also in their mind. We have so many that are fearful, Lord. But as that song we sung earlier, we are no longer a slave to fear. We are not given over to a spirit of fear. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, of love, and of a sound mind. For the perfect love casts out all fear. And so, Lord, would you increase our faith, allow us to stand on your promises and in your truth, and where our our faith is weak, Lord, would you make it strong? Let's go ahead and worship the Lord.
1: Come, the Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my... Every-
0: The topic of sin can be a difficult topic to to tackle. It it can be difficult to listen to because sometimes it it can be uncomfortable, make you squirm in your seat. But I would be remiss if we didn't offer, if there's anybody who's been backslidden or just needs to have justification by faith. You're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to do it by good works. Trying to do it by being a good person. And we've been covering that in Romans and Paul says emphatically that that's not the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by Him. So we want to offer that to you now. If you don't have justification by faith, forgiveness from a loving Savior, we'd love to offer that to you now. We can simply pray with you. Simple prayer. Does Anybody like to receive the Lord tonight who, again, is maybe not walking with him or hasn't received him as of yet. Love to pray for you. Amen. All right, seeing that there aren't any hands, why don't we go ahead and stand for a final stanza? What do you call it? Stanza? Refrain? Reprise? We'll we'll stand for, yeah, well, not the whole song. But we'll stand for a final chorus. And if you need prayer, come on up. We'd love to pray for you. We'll have pastors up here that would love to pray for you. Guys, have a blessed week.